0: You talking to me?
1: What we've got here is failure to communicate. You just put it in the right file.
0: I am serious, and don't call me Shook. Oh, hi, Mark. I'm as proud as hell,
1: but I'm not going to take this anymore. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I drink your milkshake. Okay, so uh, we're going to do something different this week. Uh, Jared here, we have no Leo, and I am, I'll stop clicking my pen, uh, here interviewing a professor I had when I was in school, Dr. Andrea Ganga, she's a lecturer in the Department of Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature at the University of Minnesota, an adjunct faculty at MCAD, as well as a post-doct- uh, future postdoctoral fellow at University of Toronto,
0: Mississauga,
1: Mississauga. Um, and that'll be happening in the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. So Thank hello. you for having
0: me. Hello. Thank you for having me. We've been wanting to do this for a long time. So yeah, I'm, I'm super excited yeah, that awesome.
1: we get to do it. Um, so we, I guess we can kind of just like start with like where we s- met mm-hmm. as sort of the mm-hmm. jumping off point for our discussion. Mm-hmm. So we met in a class. That you taught called oppositional cinemas. Mm-hmm. Um, do you kind of just want to
0: talk about that course? Talk
1: about the course, like yeah. the point of it and what we yeah. covered. And
0: so I taught that course when I was still a graduate student um, before I finished my PhD, and it was in spring 2016. And it's a course that's kind of been on the books in our department for a while, though actually it's no longer available. Um, it's been changed, and the basic idea of the course um, is to try to teach students to think about cinema as a kind of oppositional practice or art, broadly defined. So that can mean something like revolutionary third world, you know, anti-imperialist cinemas that have really explicit political projects. That could be cinemas where their oppositionality is expressed formally. So something like the projects of surrealist cinema or Dada cinema or things that happened in the early 20th century. Um, you know, oppositionality in terms of films that are produced in regions of the world that are heavily contested politically, and cinema is kind of the place to think through the, the you know, questions of those politics. Um, and when I taught the course, that was kind of the way that I approached it, was to think about oppositionality through all these different kinds of forms uh, and methods, and to think about the way that it's kind of through film language that these films articulate their resistance to something. But if you remember, what I really wanted to do in the course was also to ask the question oppositional in relation to what, Mm -hmm. right? Because oppositionality suggests that there is some kind of intended critical target, right? And so what I did with the class is I started with um, fascist cinema. So that's, of course, Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, here thinking about cinema's capacity to kind of you know, seduce and enthrall an audience into an ideological project like fascism, but also after that we watched The Matrix, which is you know kind of the Hollywood you know variant of you know a super popular um, you know blockbuster film that had its own pretensions to oppositionality. But you remember from that class, we discovered that The Matrix um, you know had its own kind of conformist uh, you know whatever form, right? It wasn't a very inventive film when we started mapping it onto, you know, the standard Hollywood sort of, you know, cookie cutter product. And so because it's either fascist cinema or the Hollywood apparatus that tends to be the target um, of a lot of oppositional filmmaking, though not exclusively, I really wanted in that class to have the students have a sense of, you know, what does it mean to interrogate film language? And, you know, what are the stakes and for whom and why? Uh, And I think in each film, and each unit, tried to sort of deal with that question. Um, So I don't know if you want to talk about, you know, what that class meant for you or, like, how you came in and out of the oppositionality question um, Mm -hmm. in that class.
1: Um, I will, before, so I think for me in general, this class was, like, very big for me as far as, like, what I wanted to end up producing because I came to it as mm-hmm. a filmmaker, not just mm-hmm. a film theorist, and not just someone who wanted to study film. Like, right. I came in with a very distinct desire to have it inform my actual praxis. Yeah. Um, and I think it's very, very hard now to imagine an idea of, like, oppositional anything or a radical anything or a different anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just... It feels like either everything's been done, everything has been approached, what has been approached is unapproachable or unsayable. So, and there's a a thing you said that I don't remember if it was in the class itself or like in our discussions, maybe afterwards or after the class itself, but you said generally this idea of like oppositional cinema or radical cinema and the role of the artist in that space is to redefine the limits of the possible. Mm -hmm. And this is like, generally how I think of like art now Mm -hmm. as an entirety that like what Mm -hmm. actual good art does is it Mm -hmm. in some way redefines the limits of the possible it Mm -hmm. articulates on like a different a new vision Mm -hmm. um, and that's like sort of the the plan Mm -hmm. of like radical or optional Mm -hmm. cinema Mm -hmm. Um, that is like the biggest thing I got out of it but then And this is the thing, sort of the catch-22 of studying oppositional cinema, is sort of everything that has been shown has somehow been digested. Yes. So surrealism obviously is like now the world of advertisement owns surrealism. Right? It's so easy for like Gucci or Dolce & Gabbana or Prada, any large brand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. there are some, some things in there that I think it, approach maybe an indigestible stance. Like mm-hmm. Von Trier's The Idiot stands mm-hmm. out to me. Mm-hmm. Which um, we watched. Which we did, mm-hmm. yeah. That was Dacasia in mm-hmm. some ways did by, mm-hmm. um, who made that again? Bill Morrison. Bill Morrison. We Did we see that movie together? He had one at the Walker. Yeah, we saw his new film. His movie. new film, I remember yeah. when we saw that. Yeah, and then we saw Dacasia in class. Yeah. yeah. That might have been something mm-hmm. undigestible. Um... So, like, I guess my follow-up question to that, like, mm-hmm. going on this idea of digestibility and sort of, like, uh, being consumed by what it's attacking. Um, so there's two bracketed questions, I guess, mm-hmm. I have for this. One of them is, is oppositional cinema and radical cinema different? Mm-hmm. And does oppositional cinema or radical c- Cinema have to be inherently reactive, right or can it be generative on its own terms right or is it always responding to something
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so um, there are sort of different things to say about that. I think you know one would be to define what is meant by radical cinema. I think most people would associate radical cinema with left cinema. so these are various kinds of cinemas, particularly in the 1960s that you know, saw cinema as the avenue to articulate a particular kind of leftist politics, whether that's the politics of the working class and anti-imperialist politics, you know, so that would be cinema that is really much more often, much more pedagogical and has a very particular intent in terms of cinema's relationship to something like revolution, right? But that has an expressed leftist commitment. But oppositional cinema, which is why I actually like the term oppositional better than I like radical cinema, because I think oppositional cinema leaves open the possibility of saying that there are ways that a film can contest reality or open up the limits of the possible that aren't necessarily about being committed to a particular set of outcomes or leftist positions. That, you know, when we look at someone like Stan Brakhage, who I included um, in the American Experimental Week that we did, you know, he was someone who, when he made um, Mothlight, Uh, You know, he makes this film, tapes all this stuff to the celluloid because, you know, he's too poor to have his celluloid, um, you know, processed. So he, like, comes up with this mode of basically projecting light through, you know, unprocessed celluloid to create, you know, an incredibly beautiful image that really hadn't been seen before. And, you know, but Stan Brakhage, I wouldn't consider him an expressly political filmmaker, even though, you know, he had a lot of things to say about that. Um, And so for me, you know, I think oppositional cinema is maybe the place to think about something other than reactionary cinema, because I'm with you in the sense that, you know, a reactionary cinema in some ways remains glued to the status quo because it kind of, you know, is pushing against it or testing it or poking holes in it. But at the end of the day, its entire form and its content is determined by that kind of dialectic. And for me, and I don't remember saying this, but it seems completely, in line with what I would say, which is that, you know, the limits of the possible really are about, you know, cinema's utopian potential. Mm-hmm. But its utopian potential is, you know, always tied, of course, I think, to its more darker ideological potential, because, you know, utopia isn't about, you know, some express project of the future, like, you know, some, this is what a utopian society would look like, you know, utopia is about, um, you know, it's about the image of the future we haven't yet imagined. So, you know, like it really is about thinking about oppositionality in relationship to utopia, because when we talk about utopia, we always think, you know, it's an image of a perfect society that will someday come to fruition and everything that is, you know, unbearable about, you know, human life and human inequality will somehow come to an end. That tends to be the more banal understanding of utopia. Um, For me, you know, cinema, because it is a place of image making, a place of fantasy and of desire and of creating worlds that don't exist, is always bound up in that question of like, how do we imagine the otherwise or imagine or stretch the limits of the possible through the kind of the potential that's inherent in the image. But as you point out, the problem is, is that the image has been colonized and digested and tamed. And, you know, there's this moment in Bim Bender's film um, you know, the one where he goes back to Tokyo. It's called Tokyo Story, yeah, to like and it, to, you to like find Ozu's image. Meditating images.
1: on Ozu. Yeah, it's like a great film. Trying that, to recreate it and stuff. Yeah, some that way. most
0: people like don't really see. But he has this moment, I think it's with with um, Werner Herzog maybe. Or some he's with it's either Werner Herzog or somebody else that he's having this conversation and he he says something like, you know, are there any images anymore? Right. And I think it's Werner Herzog responds and says, well, you know, what we really have to do is, you know, you can only now go out into space and film out there. Right. This idea that, you know, are there, are there true images anymore? Because what would be a true image would be one that, you know, would be radical enough to like change the coordinates of things. And, you know, what's worth noting as well is that our class that January was, you know, the year of 2016, which was Trump's election. Yeah. But it happened prior to that. And right. I think I just remember us laughing here and there about, you know, Trump. The Trump and like how ridiculous it seemed. And, you know, I almost think like what would have happened if I had taught oppositional cinema in 2017, you know, because mm-hmm. I never taught it again after that and now the course has been retitled, um, which I don't really agree with. But, you know, this is, um, it, you know, this is ever the more an urgent question now, right? Like, what does cinema as a kind of resistant or oppositional art form? You know, what does it do now when it seems like every possible difference of the future has been just right. eliminated?
1: Well, and this you is know, like right? interesting um, too in direct relationship for me for like Trump, or you could say like maybe Bolsonaro, mm-hmm. or or take like other other strongmen and right wing mm-hmm. leaders. Is there's like a specific like difference? in these right-wing leaders and that they're not necessarily trying to like purely uphold this sort of like symbolic order. They're also like purposefully vulgar Mm -hmm. and purposefully in their own ways oppositional. Yeah. Right. right. They in their own ways sort of destroy what we think of as like proper manners as like the like mainstream ideological apparatus. So like, I guess my question with that too is like a lot of things we watched in those films, it's oppositionality was directly sort of related to this destruction of good taste or like right, manners totally. but then if yeah. those exact same yeah moves are being done by someone yeah. like a trump totally like how does that what is the new sort of play for yes. an authentic oppositionality yes. yes
0: yes no that's great i think that's a really nice critique because it's That we saw that in so many of the films, right? That were kind of attacking bourgeois middle class sensibilities. That was certainly the case in Von Trier's film, right? Which is basically, you know, about what a group of people who are imitating the mentally handicapped. Which is funny enough, one of
1: Trump's big moves was imitating the mentally handicapped. Right, in that
0: terrible... He got blasted, right? Totally, yeah, blasted for that. How is that
1: different than what Von Trier's doing in The
0: Idiots? in, In The Idiots, absolutely, right? But like in The Idiots, it's supposed to be some sort of critique where, you know, everybody who, you know, kind of open, you know, reacts to this group of people, you know, really politely and really politically correct. Remember that moment in the film when they come out to meet the woman who wants to buy the house next door. Mm-hmm. And she's all very nice and she's mm-hmm. kind of patronizing and acting in this way until she's told that the mentally handicapped people actually live next door and like to come over a lot. And suddenly she's like, starts to act very differently. And that's a beautiful moment in the film where I think von Trier, like unveils a certain type of hypocrisy um, vis-a-vis, you know, the kind of political correct response to, um, to mentally handicapped people um, or disabled people, I guess is probably the more correct term um so so exactly like there's something you know and this is i think a very difficult conversation to have because i think I think most people are deeply committed to a notion of like good political taste or like proper behavior or this idea that somehow politics is the domain of reason. And then like Trump has shown up and like what's wrong with Trump is that he's inserted grotesquerie into politics or like right. inserted bad bad manners or poor taste or something into what is otherwise you know, an agreed upon space, the public sphere where right. we all kind of enter it, you know, with the best of our, of our, you know, kind of faculties, um, which is a very old idea.
1: Which is like a, lib- a liberal a idea, liberal right? Like idea. a Hannah Arendt sort of like totally. ancient Greece. Absolutely. This thing goes Absolutely. And this is it's
0: very old, right? And so actually a friend of mine was going to do a panel at a conference, I ended up not going through, but I thought it was a really brilliant idea because it's exactly what you're saying that... You know thinking about the roots of the grotesque vis-a-vis politics and it's referencing a Foucault citation from a text i don't remember maybe it's about um i don't know it's one of the later lectures where Foucault's talking about the relationship between the grotesque and politics and how it's somehow that it is not an intrusion into politics but rather somehow uh, endemic to the very political order, the political sphere, which Just,
1: is... Sorry to cut that off, like the liberal political sphere or like all political spheres? I
0: think he's saying the liberal political sphere, but okay. I don't know for sure. I'd have to, you know, we didn't think of it, so I'd have to look at the quotation. Sure. And I didn't actually quite even understand what Foucault um, was necessarily critiquing or thinking about there. But I think it opens up this question of, you know, if we're going to critique someone like Trump and more so think about this in the in the domain of cinema you know, um, this question of oppositionality in relation to, say, good taste, you know, that opens up some very serious questions about, you know, what does oppositionality look like now? And, you know, we haven't quite, you know, brought up the film we're going to talk about today, but I think that in some ways that film is dealing with that question. Yeah. Much so... Because um, it
1: wraps up, which... It wraps up these ideas of taste. And, yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: So, um, you know, I remember, though, in oppositional cinema, somebody said something like... Kind of annoyed frustrated because a lot of the films you, you know they pile up on the weeks you know when you get kind of like worn out. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um you know somebody said god like why do the images always have to be so disturbing yeah. you know and th- that was i think in response to Buñuel and Dalí's, you know uh Ancien and you know like the the cutting of the eyeball Sorry to ruin it for anybody who's never seen that moment. (laughs) If you remember, I told everybody that there's the before and after you see that film. Um, You know, so they were kind of frustrated. And I think that was actually a legitimate critique, like frustrated with... Feeling like the only mode of oppositionality was this kind of pushed back against one's comfort or good right. taste or something like that. And, you know, a kind of what might be understood as a kind of negative aesthetic, you know, the, right. the aesthetic of disgust or or shock or horror or something like that. Right. Um, even though I think something like *Ancien Andalou, you know, is, you know, its shock is within a very particular moment in time vis-à-vis, you know, a set of aesthetics in its moment. Um, Even though now I think people still find it quite difficult to watch that scene.
1: Well, and I think it's hard though too. Like, I mean, there's this very specific placement, right, of a lot of those films that I think of when I think of the shock films, and they're sort of between the two world wars. Yes. And, but there's an immediacy there because a lot of them come from Europe, and that's where like the the theater of war was happening. So there's this sort of like lived experience of shock that's happening there and then being commented on. But then if you come to like 21st century America, where we are so distanced already from most of what is shocking like we are our consumption of shock is already mediated through a screen before it's even there like there's not that reality of seeing something blown up in front of us everything we see blown up is on the television right so it it's hard to i think that shock doesn't necessarily work on our brains the same way because that's how we've always digested shock
0: yes yes no and i think that that's you know a kind of and that's been talked about extensively, like it's been talked about even, you know, before nine eleven. it was talked about during the Gulf right. War, it was, you know, Baudrillard wrote about, you know, the Gulf War and the the images, you know, of, of death and spectacle and it being kind of arriving, you know, on a television and what that means vis-a-vis, you know, an experience of, you know, of unthinkable violence. Um, and then you have something like 9-11, which for the majority of people in this country did take place on, on a television mm-hmm. screen. Um, and is how most people remember it, you know, unless you were in New York at the time, which, you know, also seems, as many people said in the moment, you know, which I always think is a remarkable kind of thing, is people saying, God, it really felt like the movies. Yeah. And, and that, you know, says something to us about the relationship between, you know, the moving image and our understanding of reality that, you know... It's not really anymore that the moving image reflects or expresses a reality that stands outside of it, but that reality is basically constructed through our, you know, through the moving image, which is really an epistemological kind of problem. It's like that's how we understand the world now, right? Is through the photographic moving right. image, and that that comes to be how we know it, right? And I think that that's kind of the remarkable event of the 20th century. Um, you know, Serge Daney in um, Histoire du Cinema in a Moment with Godard says something like, you know, the 20th century was a love affair with the cinema. Yeah. And, and that that, you know, comes to form everything around how we remember the past, how we imagine the future. Certainly it's the case through photography. I mean, the 20th century is arguably uh, remembered and indexed through some of its most famous images, which have themselves become cliches, um, which I find to be just like a, fascinating and ongoing process of just sort of understanding our historical
1: moment. A lot of Godard's early work itself is sort of following young French people learning how to recreate and define themselves according to the cinema they're watching. Yes. Like a lot of it is them like you know Belmondo trying to somehow like be Humphrey Bogart you know putting his like hands over his lips like that and like looking at that poster and like a lot of that is always them kind of repositioning and repurposing themselves according yeah. to the american culture that's like becoming yeah. the reality
0: so i actually um applied to go to this conference in germany uh in june and the conference topic it's called tacit cinematic knowledges and it's basically a conference precisely about this idea this idea not only that you know when we imagine reality or think or think through it um you know, uh, in terms of the past or whatever that we think cinematically, but that in fact cinema has more or less moved into all sorts of kinds of domains of life right. that we don't even imagine that actually exists beyond the image. So right. I think it's, they cite Marcel Mauss, n- you know, noting a woman walking down the hall in a way that imitated a certain way of walking in the cinema or, you know, a comment about seeing war and seeing like you're watching the cinema or, you know, certain, that thing of, you know, the gesture of the French youth imitating Humphrey Bogart, right, in their, in their kind of everyday gestures. Um, and I think for me, that's absolutely fascinating, you know, to think about cinema, not just as something, you know, we see in the movies or at home on our screen, but the ways in which it infiltrates, you know, down to the very like gestures of being. And I think that that is also like a true, like historical shift, right? That it becomes, you know, the cinema becomes, you know, integrated into into the structure of of life, right? Into the structure of bodies um, or speech or how we look, um, which is again, like the question of oppositionality there then becomes very interesting. Like this idea that, you know, you could produce a cinema that wouldn't change how people think, but it might change how people walk. Right. Or change how people sit or change right. how people occupy a space, right? Like that that I find extraordinarily interesting um, and provocative and promising. Um,
1: Sorry, it's know. just going to like fuck up the audio. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh,
0: okay. Um, so yeah, so I think that that's, you know, maybe something to think about. Um, and I'm very interested right now, we talk about this, you know, I see a lot of the films that are coming out and I'm always kind of interested right now in like how is oppositionality um, you know, articulated in contemporary cinema. Right. Um, especially American cinema or, you know, more popular cinema. Um, and I think that, I mean, I don't know if I can really name anybody that I think is doing this in a really compelling way right now. Um, Oppositional cinema, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is going back to your question of, like, you know, what does oppositionality even look like now? You know, what does it mean to have the undigestible?
1: Well, the, so there's, like, something they're, like, interested in because... I think a lot of oppositionality is always sort of talked about on these lines of like um changing thought mm-hmm. whereas like when we talk about like utopia or these ideas of like creating a different world like i would argue at least and there's like discussions about this but like changing actions sometimes sure. Sure. immediately affects the world in a different way yes right yes. like and sometimes doing creates an understanding that understanding on its own could never have created yes i think of like um you know like if you go to visit like a commune Mm. you would understand a lot more about communal living than you ever would reading about it sure you know and you would understand the problems that come up and you understand how people find a way to create solutions to that and like so you know what i mean so this sort of like the actual material reality and the actual actions of people sort of generates these new thoughts rather than these thoughts generating a material reality. And I think, you know, that's where you
0: can think about cinema in relation to other modes of art, you know, performance art or installations where what sometimes, and it obviously really depends on the artist or the project, but are attempting to rearrange people's sensoriums or the way that you you know encounter a museum space or you know that are attempting to bring about you know an event in you um, that really isn't about you know your mode of thought or what you believe or you know your ethics or whatever it really is about you know something taking place out of the ordinary vis-a-vis the way that you think about sound or you think about smell or texture or your physical body in certain kinds of spaces. I mean, all of that stuff is historical. All of that stuff is striated. All of that stuff, you know, is, is you know, very much a product of its moment. And, you know, I think that good art or interesting art, you know, tries to, you know, open up a place to question that, you know, right. um, even if it is in a very small, minute way, right? If it really is just about when you are encountering the artwork. Um, and this is, you know, that history of participatory art and, you know, all these things vis-a-vis the question of the audience. Um, and cinema is part of that history, um, even though it is, you know, arguably a much different art because it is, you know, global, because it is, you know, on the screen, because it is, you know, um, so so different in some ways. It is the master
1: art, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, the sort of the echelon. It's also much more accessible than a lot of yes, other arts. Yes, absolutely. The, you know, 94. 90- of people that you would get into a cinema would never go into a sensorium or some sort of museum space. Right. Or an installation or
0: some art or something like that. And it's true. It's, you know, and I think that's why so many leftist movements in particular were so interested in cinema because they saw cinema, you know, as much as it had a fascistic potential, it also had a profoundly democratic potential. Right. Right. And so they saw its democratic potential as also being linked to its pedagogical you know potential that like rather than handing out a pamphlet you could make a revolutionary film or you could that a film because of the way that it communicates could galvanize people to action in a way that you know
1: um,
0: that other forms couldn't and they really saw the potential there Um, right though you know if you remember when we read the third cinema manifesto you know these sort of these questions came up even in the manifesto of like okay we make this radical film but like, hmm, what about distribution? You know, like all of a sudden, these like, <laughs> yeah. like real material concerns come yeah. up, which is like, yeah, you know, but like what happens if only 20 people see it, right? Like there is this question of numbers. There is this question of, you know, and we know how heavily that's controlled, right? I mean, one of the fights we have at the U of M that we've been dealing with is this idea that, you know, we don't need DVD players or VHS players in the classroom because everything is streamable. Right. And you and I know that's not true. That's not true. That's not even close to being true. Right. You know, it's like 10% or 5% of what's available is streamed. Right. You know, and so much of that is controlled by the studios and, you know, copyright and all of this stuff. Like, you know, and even even things like what's on Criterion, you know, which is amazing, but there's a certain understanding. There's There's a limit there because there's a certain understanding of cinematic importance, right? Right. Of this idea that it belongs to the history of cinema in a certain way. And, you know, but what about those films that are like, you know, there's so many of them and it's, it's that stuff that, you know, the process of archiving is also, of course, part of that. So, you know, things are not uniformly democratically available and you can't right. just, and you know, that too is, you know, someone who's trying to make a film, you know, in less lower
1: budgets, you know, like it's not right. easy. Well, lower budgets automatically, I mean, people tune out, people have such a high quality of standards for film that they watch that yeah. if it doesn't meet a certain threshold, it's automatically tuned out. Yeah. And that's not I don't think that's a bad thing, but that's part of the fact of like making cinema is yeah. that there is like a standard of quality. And yeah. if you don't meet that standard of quality, you're automatically eliminated it right. a certain potential.
0: Yeah. Didn't that come up with *Larva* of Trier where some of the students were like this film's not very good? Yeah. yeah <laughs> they're, it was like, like, they're like I quality.
1: They're like, oh, the, yeah, it's, it's blown out. Uh, yeah, like, like
0: but it's a it's a you know, it's a dogma ninety five film. Their their right. entire manifesto was about not taking up that um, you know, uh, that tendency to, to just make a film slick, you know, they were, right. they thought they saw that as bourgeois.
1: Right. Yeah. Do you do you think that's like true in a way? Like the slickness or sort of like craftsmanship can that get in the way of like oppositional radical potential?
0: Yes. I mean, this is the debate I've been having about *Parasite*. Right. The debate I've been having with people about *Parasite* is that you know I think it's it's a excellently made film. It's as you say, well crafted. It, you know, blends different forms of genres quite deftly and brilliantly. It, you know, it's surprising, it's provocative. It, you know, like offers this meditation on social class. But I really wanted that film. I didn't like the fact that it was so well-crafted. Right. That as my friend puts it, that the ends of it were kind of neatly tucked under Right. Because for me, if you're gonna open up a question of a critique of social class, in this case in South Korea, you have to also ask the question, of, okay, so what does cinema have to do with this question? Right. Because cinema is bound up in the question of ideology. And if, you know, in what way is something like a well-crafted, you know, seamless, like beautiful kind of art cinema itself, you know, not letting it kind of, um, it's not putting itself on the line. Right. right? It seems to me in that way then complicit in something. Right. Because it won't risk its own aesthetic right and by not risking its own aesthetic that's where i'm like but isn't that you know part of what the film is trying to say you know and so it's this kind of um i wanted it to to like completely and totally like disturb form i wanted it to like disintegrate i wanted like it to have some kind of madness like i wanted it to open up some kind of future but instead it just like you know, slickly, claustrophobically enclosed its entire social critique into a perfect little film.
1: And so right. so there's, like, two things there. One of them is that this idea of... It's coming up to the idea of, like, that negative aesthetics that we talked about earlier yeah. that, like, that might in some ways be passé, oppositionally. Right, right. So, and then in another way, like, so what you're saying about, like, it's sort of being, like, neatly tucked in and well-crafted, is that only on the level of aesthetics or is that also on the level of like the story it's telling? And like, is that part of the form as in like the shots right. themselves are well composed or is it the form as in like the story itself is hitting these points on right. a plot level?
0: Right. I mean, I think that, so the, the argument that I've been having or the debate that I've been having is whether the film is aware of the fact that its own formal kind of tightness, like, is that the broader... that have a metaphorical or allegorical moment in it where what it's saying is look when we're going to open up a critique of class here and we're going to do that within the confines of late capitalism the precise point is that there is no exit here right that claustrophobically the whole thing will neatly and safely enclose upon itself not letting us out as it were right and I agree, I see that critique in Parasite. I see how that could be part of the film's formal kind of gesture in relation to the plot points, right? That that's how the form and the content kind of work together in order to articulate that, that critique. But for me, in order for that to be taking place, I would want somehow, and I don't really know how that would work in terms of what the film does, some registration or like registry of The film knowing that that is its critique. Rather than, you know, in some ways being a little bit too self-congratulatory or too sort of, you know, taking too much pleasure in its cinematic finesse. Because I don't trust cinematic finesse. I mean, maybe people would accuse me of this, you know, because, you know, I just, I mean, I, I do have an attachment to a negative aesthetic. Right. I do still feel that, you know, certain forms of, you know disintegration on screen do things yeah you know and that i i wanted that film to do that yeah. finesse scares
1: me well in my like you know? like one of my favorite probably my favorite film right persona by bergman is like yeah. incredibly well crafted and beautifully it's shot but nice. there are mo- i mean the film sure. literally right burns itself yes like eats exactly. itself up exactly so like there is this moment of like disintegration that can even take place within this like super well crafted thing absolutely and, and sure. that's where i think it becomes more of a plot point than an, like a craft point right like if you know i don't know like i compared it to boone earlier right. but like Boonwell probably authentically would have halfway through the film all the characters playing the poor people would suddenly be the rich people and all the care all the actors right. playing the rich people would suddenly be the poor people and the the story would just go on but then you'd right. have that itch throughout the rest of the movie where yes. you're like wait a second yes yes all of these actors yes are, Not the people I was used to. Yes, you know what I mean. Yes,
0: and that's that's beautiful, right? Because what's beautiful about that is it's not just disturbing your expectations for the film, but suddenly like your your those those that way that you connect to certain characters and whatever just gets flipped upside down. Yeah, it gets totally fucked up, and all of a sudden ideologically you're like, I the film rejects
1: you. Right. Right. It's a moment. And While I, still, like, maintaining a sort of aesthetic beauty that yes, isn't alienating.
0: Exactly. So it's alienating at the level of this, like, trick that it plays, but maybe not alienating at the level of, you know, the film's, you know, um, construction its cinematography or anything like that, where you still admire it and say, what an extraordinary film, right? But it mm-hmm. is still, you know, kind of rejecting you in another way um, and demanding something from you politically. And I think... For me, I I like demanding films, right? Like I like films that, you know, that want something from me or that take something from me or conversely push me away or... Um, you know, as I sometimes joke, like I like to not, like to not feel my face. You know, like, you know even though I'm someone yeah. who like, like I hate horror films, like I don't. There's certain modes of this I don't like. Right. But there are some films where you know I really think that they've done something interesting.
1: Do you think um, this is like always a sort of gesture that happens on the political level, or can this sort of be worked out in like uh, existential, personal, like spiritual level as well?
0: Sure. I mean, I think you know, isn't that, that's Bergman, right? Like Bergman is very much that, I think. Um, Michael Hanukkah. Michael Hanukkah, yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, and I mean, it's always the question, of course, of like where the political ends and begins, right? I mean, I think the argument would be that, you know, if we think of politics as a question of what's to do with the common or the communal, or you know, the question of, um,
1: you know. Which the cinema... In the twentieth century always was sure. part of the common and the communal, but that like that experience of the cinema is changing, which is like part of the reason there's a level of it where it's still communal. Yes. But only in the fact that after the pack after the fact people talk about it communally on the internet. But a lot of people now ingest cinema alone.
0: Right, alone in their house, just like we you know we were watching
1: this right here. And that some way has to change Yes. That changes everything, yes. right? The yes. delivery mode has to change everything.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I think that's the whole other part of, you know, this streaming question is like, on the one hand, yes, you know, the bulk of what we might want to see is not available on streaming. And yet, obviously, streaming is the dominant platform through which we, you know, watch cinema now. And, right. You know, there is, there are arguments to be made that, you know, the, the, what we do here, that this isn't cinema, right? Or... You know um, what even the digital image is vis a vis the celluloid image, and like we watched you know this film on Blu ray, right? And it yeah. was just like so sharp, clean. beautiful, crisp, clean. Like, and then, and, and you know, in that moment, what you see is you're like, oh, it's actually in the, like on Blu ray that the film comes across in its own celluloid nature most authentically authentically. and that's of course like a paradox right um and purists would say that that's you know ridiculous and that you know you really should just quote see it on 35 or that thing that we now say it's like ooh it's it's gonna be on 35 millimeter like whatever that means right and so um but it's interesting to see that when you see it on blu-ray that there's such a commitment to restoring its the image um as it was shot on celluloid that you know i really think you can't oppose them to each other just like maybe then you can't oppose streaming um, to seeing things in the theater, right? That there maybe right. there is there are always things that you miss when you see things in a theater or vice versa. Um, I mean, I do. I am old school. I do think some films really just should be seen on the big screen. You know. Yeah,
1: um, they're they're crafted with like that size of an image in mind. Yeah,
0: and it just has a different effect at the end yeah. of the day. You know, especially because it's not easy to get up. It's not easy to stop. It's not easy. You know, you're kind of enclosed. You know, you know bart writes about this you know in the cocoon right where you're kind of gl- your eyes are glued right. to the cinema and you know some films really depend on that formally you mm-hmm. know that you can't just get up and go or look at your phone or... a lot of early
1: cinematic critique required that is sort of like its idea of how like like the entire idea right of like the male gaze is yep. like part and parcel of this like you're in a black box yep. and suddenly all of your other like senses have been like subsume yep. to the main character the, of this yep. film you're watching
0: yeah and that that's precisely what creates possibility for ideological capture right the, this idea that you then identify with the, with the ego ideal on screen and you know you kind of become fused with them and then you know and then you're out in the street you know kind of trying to like you know de-poison yourself right and kind of like detox from this like weird experience that you've had
1: right interesting Let's get into Salo. All right. That's the... Yeah, we <laughs> Should we
0: tell them what we watched? Yeah. For the second time. For the second, second time, time together.
1: Salo yeah. or 120 Days of Sodom.
0: Why did we decide to watch this film originally? The first Didn't, time? Yeah. We, neither of us had neither seen it. Neither of us
1: had seen it. Right. It feels like sort of a rite of passage. passage. It's like a cinema... Cinephile sort of yeah. necessity. Yeah. And it's legendary. I mean, in the in that
0: little booklet it says it's a film that's more known for not being seen than being in seen, being seen right. yeah i
1: mean pasolini was murdered yeah. like after making after it this. it was banned all over the place yeah. yeah um and he i mean he coming into this had made some communist cinema yes. but had just came off a trilogy his trilogy of yes. life yes. which in a lot of ways is I think maybe trying to be oppositional in a positive way. Yeah. Like trying to reconstitute pleasure and joy yeah. in a sort of oppositional, radical way. Yeah. Right? But then he saw that itself be subsumed yeah, as like all things are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it seems like in a way, like kind of going to this negative aesthetic, which Solo obviously is, yeah. like yeah. there's maybe something more, more easily subsumable about like joy or mm-hmm. pleasure and mm-hmm. that like it can be recrafted and like like the knockoff can be sold yes easier yes yes but there's still a a sense like horror is a great example of the negative being repurposed as a knockoff absolutely absolutely
0: i mean you know i mean i find horror cinema very interesting even though i you know have trouble watching it but i mean you know when i first saw this and we watched it together you know i think I don't know. I think I remember the different parts of it. I remember parts that were disgusting or like hard to deal with. Um, but I remember thinking at the end of it that it wasn't somehow as like grotesque or claustrophobic or just obscene, you know, the first time. And then now seeing it the second time, I was like, this, this film is unbelievable.
1: It's disgusting. It, yeah. I mean, it's
0: like I, what I felt like was that I no longer had the language or had the language to talk about this film yeah and i think you know comparatively speaking we can point to films that exist now that would be much worse than this one uh whatever what is the the human centipede right. series the saw series right? there are many films like a pure
1: snuff film
0: snuff film like there are existing even just like popular cinemas that arguably are much more grotesque than this yeah, film
1: absolutely um
0: and yet and yet you know, I found it this second time very difficult to watch. Very challenging. Um, and I don't know, I guess I could talk about how that is, but, or why that's
1: yeah. the end. I don't know well, how I you think, felt watching it. I think it kind again. of, like, bridging it into it. The first thing I was, like, interested by it is so kind of this idea of, like, the negative aesthetic and, like, taste in general. Yeah. So, like, the film itself, like, what is presenting, right? Like, eating shit, like, people eating nails, like, Everything. you know, violent sexual assault. Like, yeah death like yeah. it's presenting these things right which obviously like as themselves are a part of bad taste yes but there's this dichotomy of like that bad taste but also being presented like with these beautiful like yes. wide angle yes. highly formal symmetrical shots yeah. like yeah. um the the like characters themselves the fascists the president and like yeah. the lord and like all that stuff have like they quote baudelaire and they argue that it's yeah. like baudelaire versus nietzsche they have yeah. like Picasso-esque Cubist paintings on the wall they like dress well like everybody has very nice Italian clothes right? So this like question of like taste and how like taste bumps up against the sort of vile or the unspeakable I guess
0: Well that you know what I really noticed this time in the film was I finally understood you know the staging of the rituals and the rites that they're you know kind of constructing and you know what's really noticeable is that the, the various older women who are clearly lifelong prostitutes and yeah you know are now older women who you know are kind of telling the stories of their experiences um as young women and as prostitutes um you know like they're dressed in these yeah these incredible like aristocratic clothing the, the way that they tell the story is like, everybody's like gathered around in these incredibly ornate rooms, you know, of like old Italian aristocracy. And, you know, again, yeah, the sense of like aesthetics and ritual. And, you know, this is not as obscene as the film is, as difficult as it is, as much as it engages in what we would consider to be the very unspeakable reaches of like human desire, you know, isn't really, they're not, it's not a film you know, I wouldn't call it a beautiful film that doesn't seem like the appropriate right. word to use, but you're right that it is a film that you know doesn't seem to it doesn't abandon those questions. It stays close to the question of because I think this film really is about ritual, right? Like I think it is thinking there's that moment where they cite Saad, which is I guess the film is based on the book, right? Yeah, um, saying you know that it's in the absence of religion a.k.a. the death of God, right, that something like ritual within the domain of the erotic ends up, like, substituting religion's place um, in terms of, you know, the symbolic or something like that. Um, And the other thing, of course, that somehow the first time watching this film wasn't clear to me but is much more clear to me now, that this is, of course, like, a trenchant, unflinching critique of fascism.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
0: And But I i don't actually even begin to know how to articulate what the critique is
1: can we start with the uh, first thing you said about ritual yeah and then maybe try to get into the fascism stuff yeah because they uh, like the uh, the substitution right this like atheist turn that like sexual ritual takes place i think there's like some sort of relationship to like like in like like uh, the Jewish tradition, right? There's this whole like you can't see the face of God or you die. Right. There's this like ultimate otherness, and there's yes. almost like an abjectness tied yes. into that that like yes. leads to like destruction. Yes. Right. And that somehow I think is tied to yes how ritual is played out here. Yes. It's like the substitute yes. for the ultimate abject.
0: Yes. Yes, because there's in the circle of shit, which is you know the film is broken up into those three right: circle of obsession, circle of shit, and circle of
1: blood, blood. Yeah.
0: right in the circle of shit you know is where the practices of eating shit that is you know showed to us on screen and also talked about in the story by the prostitute is consistently linked to death
1: yeah
0: right and is consistently you know talked about in the context of you know, men who are dying. You know, wanting to see the ass of the of the girl, and then shitting, and then like dying with this. You know that somehow these two things are linked, right? The kind of the end or the destruction of, of subjecthood, and you know, shit as you know, death and defecation, and you know, the decay of life somehow get wound together. Um, as again, you know, if if God is that which is unseeable or unrepresentable. You know in an atheist world then obviously so too is death or like death right. becomes what god once was which is you know the unreachable right um unrepresentable
1: other well there's a sort of like i mean because like those those things right by like turning into a symbol whether it's like shit or like a word for it like in a religious sense yeah, today yeah. would be like idols there's an alienation involved there yeah that like the the like symbolic ritual takes place of like the thing itself and it alienates the individual from like an authentic yes sort of yes encounter with like the thing itself
0: and so and that of course is the great irony and which is probably very difficult uh, lol to digest (laughs) is that is that for all its obscenity and its difficulty here shit is always more than shit yeah Right. It is. In other words, like what's interesting about that entire section is that not even shit can be left to be shit. Right. Right. That like shit as the the kind of that which is nothing without symbolic meaning, decay, disgust, like the final kind of limit where that which means nothing. Right. A.K.A. death. It still can't be tolerated. Right, shit still has to be. It digested. It has to be a standard. So it has to right. be a standard, right? It has to be digested. It has right. to be eaten. It has to be turned into ritual. It has to be turned into a mode of desire. Right. Like even that which we, of course, would think as like beyond obscenity. The whole point here is that that too is being ritualized, right? Like that right. too is being turned into something symbolic, into something masterable, as seemingly unmasterable in the scenes. It seems it's very difficult to watch, right? Like, yeah. I find that to be one of the most disgusting parts of the film because they do a really, really nice job, right? Like, like, making it look real. Like, really yeah. <laughs> making it look real. And, of course, we know, because this is the background of the film, that, you know, it was chocolate cake that they were eating. Um, and you, we were saying this when we were watching this, like, just remember, this is chocolate cake, it's chocolate cake. Right. But, like, it doesn't work. Right. I don't find it... Like, it doesn't work for me to remember that. Like, I, you know, uh, I find it... It makes me feel physically sick. Yeah. Watching it, like, physically sick, I feel like I'm going to throw up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And does that... So like I'm always, like I'm thinking of it too like in relationship to like like Freud's ideas of like the death drive yeah and sort of like so there's this thing that in the beginning of the film right everything is green and brown, like you have grass and yeah. then you have the brown of like buildings and the brown of dirt. Yeah. And then it's sort of subverted in, into the interiors into red and brown, yes. which is really the only things, and like some neutrals, some whites yes. and blacks that people are yeah. wearing, but like all of the interiors are red and brown. Yes. And then green doesn't come back again until the wedding scene. Right. We so like, it's like bringing yeah. in that sort of life mm-hmm. in it, right? Mm-hmm. But, but this seems to be like, it's like they're reconstituting... A sort of like, like legal, like ritualistic, like language that's that was meant in like the first place to sort of like uh, protect life. Yes. And and turning it, fascism maybe does this right, or it, not maybe. Fascism does this is it sort of reconstitutes law, ritual, society to suddenly become a factory of death. Yes. And it yes. it reinterprets law and it reinterprets. Yes the reason for things to produce death yes whereas like society as such like we know it has always produced like life right right right?
0: though i mean arguably i would say that you know fascism also has the inverse of you could kind of invert that and say well you know because we see this in lenny riefenstahl for example in triumph of the will that you know fascism has a very particular attachment or investment in a notion of life but it's life as you know and i've a friend of mine many, many years ago, i thought quite brilliantly defined fascism as the you know the desire for an unmediated totality, right, which is you know this idea of a kind of communal ecstatic whole that would be like purely imminent and would be undifferentiated, and you see that in triumph of the will with these like ecstatic you know kind of orgiastic scenes of communal togetherness right um which seems also to be not about death but about harnessing the erotics of politics into a kind of like thriving like heaving breathing whole, right right like a where,
1: bacteria like a single cell organism exactly sort of like exactly created, exactly yeah. like
0: where where community becomes its own like kind of like pulsating you know living thing that somehow is like generates its own power electricity right and that that really is part of the fascist desire, um, I think in many ways, which is like why, you know, and we, if you remember, we read Susan Sontag on fascism mm-hmm. and at the very, you know, the very famous essay and at the very end of it, you know, she talks explicitly about the ways in which Nazi iconography has found its way into like gay and queer SNM yeah. stuff, you know, and I think that past, and I don't remember if she talks about Pasolini or not in that essay. But, you know, it's very clear in this film that, you know, Pasolini's trying to think the same thing, that, you know, what is the relationship between erotics and fascism or between sexuality and political desire? Like, why does he bring these two things together, right? Um, and I agree with you that it is obviously about a factory of death, we know that, but there is also something else in terms of erotics and life, yeah. right, that, that I think fascism is fundamentally bound up in.
1: Well, and it, um, it, it's a... It does a different thing, because I think of, like, like leftist erotics, right, is is very much tied up to, like, ideas of liberation and freedom yeah, totally. and a lack of repression. Yes, exactly. Right, whereas, like, fascism sort of, it opens up, it sort of levels all actions to the same so anything can go. Yes. But it doesn't function as a, as a like, a freedom from repression because it's, like, ritualized... It's still constrained within some like some sort of like form that right, right. it's not... Because everything is permitted, that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody is liberated.
0: Correct. And then we see this in the rules that are created, right, for the, the fascist leaders and then the, the kind of the teenagers or young adults that are kind of the, the objects or subjects of this torture. You know, they're forbidden right. from doing anything. And then what you see in the end is when various people are engaged in various things holding onto a photograph you know a scene of lesbian desire you know the man and woman you know who are sleeping together at the end and suddenly you realize and you know the fascists realize you know their great mistake which is like you cannot master the body right. you cannot master erotics and you cannot master desire which
1: is why you, you have know? to kill we have to destroy the body at yeah, the end yeah at right? the end
0: or like you know this this idea that even within the confines of their rules within the confines of the levels of ritual that they had enacted that something slips through the cracks. Right. And that I think is always the ultimate lesson of desire, right? And so I think that that's, you know, very interesting and compelling in the film, you know? And I, the thing I noticed this time too, and you can tell me if you saw this, is also like the small bits of intimacies in, these, in this film, mm-hmm. you know, or that like that one kid who's, like, having a good time. Yeah. Right? The, the curly-haired like, kid. Yeah, the hair kid. curly-haired kid. He, like, like, loves everything. He loves everything. And you're like, oh, shit, he's a fascist, you know? And so he's, you know, he's, like, smiling. He's, like, he responds to the kisses. He's, like, into the, you know, he's into it.
1: Yeah. And then you have
0: this moment of, yeah. of you know, not really knowing what to do with him. Yep. You know? Um, the one who is not suffering at all and seems to be, you know, really just, like, having a great time.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, like, a... Like a sadist and a masochist at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Because they like when they list off all the names they like laugh and pat him on the yeah. at the end there yeah. so yeah and yeah you can track these like individuals and you're like wait why is that guy like yeah. laughing again
0: yeah like, why is he having a good time yeah you know, like what's going on here and then the other people who are clearly suffering enormously or you know the women the older women who are the prostitutes you know and i think that's quite a compelling critique you know as well from pasolini of like like these women are completely fascist like they're you know they don't there doesn't really seem to be a commentary in the film about whether men or women are worse, yeah, you know there really seems to be a uniform kind of blanket you know thinking about like now the women here are just as complicit like there's no you know if there is a critique of patriarchy here i don't know where it is yeah and, i don't see it yeah i don't see anywhere in it yet. Yet. unless it's precisely to say that the
1: women here are as monstrous, you know? yeah can we talk about and this is like kind of I th- a lot of the scenes I can think of like the women are a part of this specifically is like the role of laughter and humor mm-hmm. in this film yeah and i wrote down like where does the laughter come from because it's not it's not joy or no. any sort of positive expression is it like cruelty is it sadism mm-hmm. is it and the humor a lot of the jokes are like what we would call like anti humor right. like where the punchline is sort of like a it's banal
0: right
1: like where do you think like humor plays into mm-hmm. this, and how do you think jokes and laughter functions in this film?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I noticed it this time as well. I wrote it down. Like they kept making those weird, stupid jokes about, you know, that that seem. I don't know if they're classic Italian jokes or not, um, but some sort of kind of. And it was clear that it wasn't about creating an effect of the laughter, but it was almost like, yeah, maybe you know, there's something about the cruelty in the joke, right? It's not about the object of the joke being the cruel thing, right? Of like making fun of someone or as we tend to think of when a joke is inappropriate, you know, that it, that it makes light out of something that's not light. But there's more like, you know, something about, or maybe that is what it is. You know, it's, it's about the kind of, you know, laughter, laughter that is in some senses and jokes that are meaningless, right? That, that are, don't have a symbolic purpose or don't introduce freedom or introduce happiness but it just seemed to be a kind of um, it's like an expression of power or something I don't know I don't really know how to think about it Mm -hmm. Um, that's maybe one of the more difficult parts of the film that I don't Mm -hmm. really have an answer to I mean do you have a sense of what the I
1: don't know I've always so I've always like been skeptical I've always been skeptical in some ways of like humor being an oppositional act right I think humor is like a lot of people. I think, especially today, there's this sort of like, oh, I get my oppositionality from like edgy comics, right, or I get my right, oppositionality right. from making a mockery of people right. in power. And this is kind of where we come from, where we come from the beginning, is like, how do you make a mockery of Trump when Trump's whole shtick is sort of mocking himself? Right. And he's he's like very self conscious of the role he's playing, and he's self conscious of like the joke that gets played when he says things yeah like he knows he's playing the buffoon at times and he uses that right he uses like because that in itself he like generates his own humor that his followers enjoy yes right and this is even like like yesterday i was looking on twitter right and i was like i'm don't follow him but like i was looking through it but he calls mike bloomberg mini mike bloomberg (laughs) which is hilarious right like but it's it's like not necessarily like mockery and making fun and like Humor, I'm just skeptical of it as a sort of oppositional radical form. Yeah,
0: and we talked about that in the class as well, right? Some of the films that used humor um, in order to bring... And, you know, that, of course, has a long tradition, right? You go back to Chaplin, the great dictator, right? Right. Trying to make fun of Hitler. Right. Um, Though even Chaplin recognized that there was a limit to what humor could do. Uh, You know, famously, he said that if he had known um, at the time about Auschwitz and the camps, he would not have made the film. Yeah. Um, So I think that he understood that humor is not it's not something that there are places that humor cannot go. Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, there's an answer there to how humor works um, in, you know, in Salo, because I think maybe it's connected to to the end of it after this torture scene that we're kind of subjected to and then the two boys start dancing together. And I think it's it's something about humor or, or pleasure or these kind of ordinary things in the midst of, you know, something atrocious. Right. That in some ways extend you know, makes the atrocious or unbearability of that torture um really like inscribes it into something totally meaningless. Right? It's like it's like, yes, on the one hand, this torture is really ritualized, but on the other hand, maybe what we have here is a form of radical nihilism, right? Yeah. That the, the laughter in Salo is nihilistic, you know, yeah. it's, it's laughter that destroys, it's jokes that destroy, that believe in nothing, that, you know, and that know it, that, and this is maybe coming back, this is where laughter and jokes are about death, you know, and, and they know that, right? There's, George Agamben has a thing in his book on Auschwitz where he talks about that one of the, some of the prisoners in the camp, talked about how every sunday there would be a soccer game between the ss and some of the prisoners and i don't know if there's verification of this but it's either Gombin or the person who's recounting this story that says that this little anecdote or this piece of information is what expresses the horror of auschwitz most profoundly mm. and i was always struck by that because i thought you know aren't there ultimately more horrible or unthinkable things that happened there and i think I think what the person was trying to say is that somehow the fact that what was going on in Auschwitz that somehow you could also make pretensions to the ordinary to the everyday yeah. to the normal in the midst of all of this like insanity somehow you know was the most grotesque thing and so like maybe this is what the laughter or humor in Salo is too it's like it's this kind of... Because jokes obey certain kinds of structures of language, certain codes yeah. of culture. And so they end up being... You know, it's like some insertion of that. Um, I don't know. This is just speculative.
1: but okay. Well, yeah, because jokes rely on... Jokes rely on norms that are subverted in order to, pr- to produce humor. Right. Right? And so in in a sort of space like that where the norms are so upside down mm-hmm. and so backwards to subvert them seems almost unthinkable right it, to subvert it you would almost think the opposite you almost have to like right because well and this is like the the rat like the oppositionality in this film as far as like from the victims are like usually these scenes when like girls hug each other when they're upset yes right like that is what we would call, like, good manners in our world right there is this form of, like, resistance. Resistance isn't even the right word because they're not really resisting. But do you know what I mean? They're opposing something by, like, being kind to each other. Yes. Like, it's like, like, you know, there are these, like, uh, like, Midrash written about Sodom and Gomorrah, right, where, like, the idea is, like, charity was outlawed and if you, like, help someone, you would be, like, put to death. Yes. Right? So, like, but the jokes don't the jokes are so like banal that they don't really and maybe that's something to say about like what i'm saying about jokes is that like like jokes and humor can laugh in that kind of world as long as they aren't actually attacking mm-hmm. what is like what would be opposing it which is like the jokes don't right. produce kindness right. right right they're just used as like a further sort of like an another knife another knife right which in in a lot of ways like jokes even here where we like talk about like edgy comedians who just sort of like 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 attempt to like push limits in a world that's already like grotesque yeah right like when you make like like just off the top of my head right like if you make like jokes about, like, Muslims or Arab people in a world where, like, what's happening in, like, Palestine is happening, or, like, what's happening in Syria or Yemen is happening, like, it's, like, it's almost, like, vile and cruel to try to, like, use that and, like, push some sort of limits when, like, those limits are being transgressed so horrifically somewhere else.
0: Right. And I think, you know, I mean, I am really of two minds about this because I, on the one hand, see that critique. And there are jokes that I hear that I don't like to hear, you know, that I get very angry about and don't think things that I think are not funny. But on the other hand, you know, I'm always tempted to say, like, you know, what is it in the nature of the joke? You know, in other words, if it is the case or not, if it is the case, so let's say you make a joke about something that is horrific, like, you know, a devastating refugee situation or, you know, unthinkable war or something. It, It seems to me, you know, that there's something there to say, which is, you know, is it really the case that a joke, you know, even a one line joke, introduces the possibility of not taking that thing seriously? In other words, what I'm saying is, what is it about how we understand what a joke is vis-a-vis laughter that makes us feel like making jokes about quote unquote serious situations is morally bankrupt, right? So it's right. like it's like we, there's some implicit understanding of what humor does and doesn't do, um, in relation to politics and in relationship to seriousness, um, that I think you know could be opened for question because this was Chaplin's response as well. Like when people asked him why did you make a film about Hitler, like a funny film about Hitler, and he said, "What are you talking about? You know, I made it because Hitler should be laughed at, mm-hmm. right? That there was." For him, there was something in the in the risk of taking him seriously, right? Or, put differently, Chaplin took Hitler seriously, extremely seriously, by making a film about him that, you know, opened him up to mockery, that that was very right. important. But as you point out, that no longer works as a strategy.
1: No, because they open themselves up to mockery and indulge in that. Right.
0: So, and I think that's where the joke has the potential, right, for being actually quite transgressive and critical, that It's in fact in the contents of the joke, or in the mockery, or in the humor, that you might be able to deliver or bring people close to an understanding of how serious something is. And I'm not saying this as saying, okay, we should make jokes about shitty things. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that, you know, maybe Salo is in some ways opening up this question of like, what is the social role of a joke? Yeah. What is its relationship to the appropriate and the inappropriate? What is this relationship to good taste and bad taste? You know, what is the limit of a joke? Who is the audience? Who is the audience? Right. Um, Who tells the joke and what kind of position of power are they afforded or not afforded? You know, what is the relationship to the joke, to language, um, to representation? Um, You know, so I think that those are questions that I would want to ask. And, you know, and we see this right now in humor with, you know, the um, you remember that one on Netflix, that famous. Hannah Gatsby, right? Hannah Gatsby's whole, f- you know, that really famous Netflix special where she basically, you know, refutes the basic premise of comedy, which is to treat one's own life and one's own experience. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nanette? Right, Nanette, yeah, right? as the object of ridicule. Right. And I think a lot of people responded and felt a lot of, you know, in- inspired by that. Um, I was not personally convinced right. by that logic. Um, I don't know why, but I think it's because I feel differently about... Um, the domain of comedy, but okay. So I, you know, following that or maybe related to that, I have questions about this film as well. Um, One question about the film is I guess what it's saying about fascism Um, or what, like one of the things I kept thinking is, you know, this is Pasolini, like is Pasolini condemning or critiquing some of these what would be SNM or BDSM practices, like, you know, put it in the youthful way. Is he a kink shamer? <laughs> and I'm like, this is Pasolini. Like, I don't think so. Right. right. It doesn't seem like his MO. So, you know, what does it mean that he's like connected fascism to these practices? Um, mm. Or, you know, so like, how do we think about that in terms of this film? Um, and the other thing that I would, you know, kind of want to talk about is what I think is the film's kind of final metaphor, um, and how it introduces a, a kind of a reading of the audience, which yes. is the guy in the chair with the seeing. binocular looking through, quote, the screen, seeing this thing of torture, which I think is really meant to be or could be an allegory for the cinema.
1: Well, and um, I think, so from the fascism point, and, like, right to, like, Pasolini called himself a Catholic Marxist, right? Yeah. That's essentially his, like, political stance. He's a Marxist, he's Catholic. Like, yeah. he belie- he very much believed in, like, maintaining like like old pre-capitalist cultures Mm -hmm. and like allowing that to preserve without being co-opted into Mm -hmm. this like unified whole of capital Mm -hmm. so i think fascism in a lot of ways and this is also like made again like we said earlier like after the trilogy of life Mm -hmm. where he tried to sort of reinsert like joy and pleasure Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm into worlds, Mm pre-capitalist worlds, right? Like the Arabian Nights, the Mm -hmm. Canterbury Tales, the Decameron. Mm -hmm. We're talking about like two European and one Middle Eastern Mm -hmm. world that existed before capital subsumed Mm -hmm. everything and everyone. Mm -hmm. So, and then those bodies, right? And that sort of style he cultivated there got subsumed by capital and like Mm -hmm. snuff films were essentially made Mm -hmm. out of his like aesthetic. Mm -hmm. So I think the fascism he's explicitly combating here while he's using the location of mussolini's like mm-hmm. republic after he was kicked out of rome and he uses desad's like sort of formal story structure i think the fascism he's fighting isn't that world war ii fascism but like a, the fascism of capital mm. and so i think it's positioned in like the modern day like capital and he sees that sort of like what you were saying this like this single blob, this, like, single cell organism that, like, produces its own lecture and as, like, the capitalist, mm-hmm. like, apparatus mm-hmm. itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and BDSM, I think it's just, it's just a thing, like, BDSM is just a part of it, but, like, like, all things can become commodity under capital. Right. Like, all things... There isn't a single thing or lifestyle or, like, identity under capital that can, like, inherently in its own way be oppositional. Right. Like, everything can be both things. Yes, and so, like, good. to think of anything that's within the system itself as its potential liberation is ridiculous right. because everything right. that's already in it is already subsumed by it. Right. Which is why this, like, this important idea of, like, oppositional cinema as, like, utopia... Like, utopia, like, the, the like, messianic potential is so important because utopia and, like, the messianic are, by definition, that has which not come yet. Exactly. And so you must always make and must always think in terms of liber- like, trying to find what has not come.
0: Yes, exactly. And, like, making that legible if not visible, right? Like, indexing it, inscribing it, like, saying it is there. Right. We will gesture to it. Right. We will point to it. And it's like by pointing to it that we introduce an exit or the diachronic within the space of the synchronic. Right. Which is the kind of the static systematic whole. Right. That we're trapped in. You know, and there's always this question of like, what is the future? Is there a future? How do we reach that exit? You know, Um, and I think that's very important.
1: But that's like I mean, that's like a part of capitalism itself, I think, is capitalism inherently attempts to create no future.
0: Exactly. No, totally. Right? It like in- invades the horizon.
1: Right. It attempts to like destroy that. And but that's the beauty of like like future itself always kind of appears out of nowhere. Yes. Like and you know the closest like thing we've had to this recently is like the sudden emergence of Bernie Sanders, yeah. which was like yeah. There's no other word but sudden. Yeah. Right? Which is like,
0: Trump's emergence is identical. As, as, well. as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They, they both came completely out of nowhere and both suddenly offered... Alternatives. Alternatives that nobody was thought possible.
0: Yeah. And I, I always weirdly think that it is possible for Bernie Sanders to be president because Trump could be president. Yeah. That's kind of like my feeling, you know? Although that's kind of like a different topic. Also. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag Bernie 2020. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, and then the other thing, you know, and I guess I have another, like, a follow-up question behind this, this other question. So this, you know, how to think about the conclusion, you know, where, you know, the guy's sitting in the chair, he's got the binoculars, he's looking through the window, and there's, like, this scene of torture that I think you find more difficult to watch than I do, though I also find it quite gross, you know? Yeah. Um But... You know because weirdly torture bothers me a little bit less though like it really? still bothers me yeah but i have a hard time with the shooting like that's really a trouble that's really a problematic one for me but like <laughs> the, the um uh, and weirdly somehow the violence against women even though it's like very clear in the film you know bothers me less or there's something you know there's something to say about that which is part of my follow-up but you know how to think about you know that thing at the end of the film where we are watching the torture scene out in the courtyard where all these people are being like flayed and burned and like all this stuff is happening to them. But the guy is watching it through the binoculars and like part of the, I think, implied pleasure of the sadism there is the voyeurism, right? It is about, it's not about being present. It's not about the doing of the torture. It's not about receiving the torture. It's about watching the torture from a distance and the pleasure of of that voyeurism. And of course, everything's silent, right? Which is very interesting. You know, there's like no screaming, there's nothing, we watch it from a distance. Um, and every time I now the second time I see that, I think, is this Pasolini in a weird way condemning us? Like he's let us into a trap. Right. He's showed us this film that is filled with just like just absolute grotesqueries. And we're sitting there and we're watching it, you know, like sheep let off the end of a cliff. <laughs> and, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's this guy in the chair, he's got his binoculars. He's looking through a screen, the screen of torture. And he's has it's incredible pleasure. Right. He's like excited about it. He's clearly a fascist. And I'm like, is this Pasolini? like condemning us, is he saying you fools, you sat through this, like, you know, was different, you know, is there a difference between us and the guy who's sitting in the chair? Um, Is he reminding us of cinema's fascist potential uh, in that moment, you know, that we can be captured by the image and what we're looking at and that the pleasure of the voyeuristic sort of, you know, event in cinema is, can lead us to accept, you know, the most terrible things, like the way triumph of the will seduces us into fascism well and not
1: only pleasure but just dis- like any sort of reaction disgust yes. too yes like like at the end of the day a sort of like voyeurism regardless of whatever the effect is on you you're complicit in yes it. it doesn't matter if you feel bad or feel good to see it itself Yes, is the problem.
0: Yes, and isn't that? I mean, I don't know if Pasolini would have been quite so on the nose about this, but you know, maybe he's saying also something about what about bystanders to fascism, right? Yeah. What about you know all of the people who maybe weren't SS and weren't Nazis, you know, but you know the everyday population of Germany that mm. you know knew or didn't know or sort of knew, and you know, you know, led millions of people to their death. Right. So I
1: think the and I think the more you hear the history, they, they, like, knew. Yes. Like, it was happening, yes. like, in their towns. In their towns, that they like, could
0: smell and, like, and, you know, yeah, and hear. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, mm-hmm.
1: I don't I don't think people didn't know.
0: Yeah. And so I think it's, so maybe there is something there, Pasolini is, is critiquing and condemning the position of the watcher, the bystander, the right. lawyer.
1: Um, well, and we can say that even today. Like, why... Why haven't 50,000 Americans stormed the cages at the border and liberated those families? Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, and that's, it's absolutely true. Or like when the information came out about the NSA and, you know, the amount of surveillance that the U.S. government, you know, was engaging in vis-a-vis its citizens, I remember thinking, why is nobody outraged? Like, why is there not national protest? Mm -hmm. You know, like state, you know, nationwide strikes, like why are people so why are people not upset you know and it's it was and of course you know i'm not american so i'm coming from a standpoint of also just like watching you know the american kind of political imaginary and just always being amazed by what people accept and don't accept but um you know i think at least in the film i think that's where pasolini is opening us up to reminding you know reminding us of the risk of and I don't think he's being didactic. I don't think he's being like don't stand by and let torture happen. No. Like, no. That's not Pasolini, right? right. He's, he's not a moralist, which I really appreciate about right. him. But, you know, he's he is nonetheless opening up something around the question of power and vision in the cinema um, that I think is worth meditating on, you know. And I guess yeah, go ahead.
1: The the idea of like seeing itself being a form of power. Yes. Is interesting. Yes, I because guess seeing if you see there's like implicit in that sort of structure, there's a distance. Yes. Right? If you're seeing, you're not a part of it. Yes. If you like are watching the videos of Yemen, that means you're not in Yemen. Yes. Right? Yes. There's like, you're being implicated in not only you watching it, but also you not being there. Yes. You know? Yes.
0: Because I think there's also, you know, this film has a certain helplessness in it where you know, I always think, like, why does nobody rebel? Like, why does nobody I'm grab the, the same gun? Thing. I've why seen the nobody, same
1: fucking thing. why don't
0: they shoot them in the back of their heads? Like, you know, there's just something here about about the total submission to what's going on, you know? Where it was like, there's more of them than there were of, you know, like, sure, one has the guns. But it's like, yeah. you know, it didn't seem to me like you couldn't kick the ass of these people soundly, you know?
1: Well, and there's this sort of, like, at the beginning, right, the whole thing of, like... You're here, like to the world. You might as well be dead. Nobody knows you're here. Nobody will come try to save you. Nobody will, yeah, like hear yeah. your screams. Like you yeah. only exist here under our law yeah. now, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, and this is like one of this is the literally the first thing they tell them yes. as a group. As a group,
0: yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, I think that, that is also where I find this film so obscene. Is in just like it's absolute claustrophobic registry of power like it's, and the the kinds of torture and infliction that's taking place you know um you know when we've talked about this is that i did not i chose not to put Sallow in the syllabus at the time i had not seen it even though of course i knew it's i knew its reputation very well and i thought about it because i think you know I don't. I didn't feel like there should be a limit of what one shows in a class like Oppositional Cinemas. But I'd had a colleague who had shown solo in a different class. Maybe it actually it was in Oppositional Cinemas a number of years prior to that. And people walked out. Yeah. And, you know, I think I just didn't want to take the risk of this film um, in the classroom setting because I think this is the kind of film that could very well upset people to the limit of, you know, really like you know protesting it or being upset that i subjected mm-hmm. them to it and it would feel weird um, too
1: like both times i've seen this i've seen this with you right yeah. and we're like pretty good friends but yeah. like to think of seeing this in a room with 20 people where i'm not close to 15 of them like yeah. i wonder how different that would have felt yeah you know to be in the same room with people i don't really know yeah like seeing that
0: yeah and i think i agree i agree i think that it's you know even under the best circumstances uh when you know and we had a very good class yeah. We had a very good class, like really, really bright people. Like that's, in the 11 years I've been teaching, that was one of the best classes I've ever had uh, in terms of how committed and interesting and smart people were in that class. Um, I still think there was a limit. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I do know of or have heard people who show very difficult films, um, but I think that it has to be within a particular context. And I think I think this film is very difficult. I mean, it's like it it shows, you know, it's like clear repeated endless scenes of you know i mean it's not extreme maybe as as more contemporary films in their depiction of rape but you know people are raped men and women in this film yeah. um you know uh there are accounts of you know the prostitutes recounting you know what we would now consider sexual assault um or pedophilia like you know it really is
1: i mean but it's presented also like Like, the whole movie really is presented with the binoculars. Yes. Like, it's from a distance, there's no close-ups of anything. Everything is, like, wide-angle lenses from a distance, even, like, all of the stories, right? What's a story? It's a recounting. Yeah. It's already at a distance, yes. right? You're yes. not there. No, no, like, no.
0: Everything's represented. Everything, everything is, is yeah, right. This is not cinema verite. This is not Dogma 95. This is not handheld no. shaky shooting where you feel like you're going to vomit because you're in the middle of something. It's
1: incredibly distant. No. It's, and, like, it's like Hanukkah in some yeah. ways. Like, yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think, you know, for all of the things that it displays, it's not a very erotic film. No. you know like it's not it's not without that stuff I mean there are it has its moments but when I'm watching it I'm just like constantly dodging you know it's either it's attempts to try to seduce me or you know I just like move from like small moments of you're like oh this is kind of sexy to then being like now I'm horrified yeah. you know like it's const- you're kind of constantly backed up against those two things uh, in the film and, but because it does everything from a distance and in some ways it's so sterile like I do find the film in many ways sterile You know like when the fascists are like choosing the women and the men they're like standing there kind of half there's no
1: real texture there's
0: no texture no it's it's like like a lot of
1: like stone walls like the lighting is very like even and flat and unexpressive and unexpressive there's nothing like there's no like water or smoke or fire like there's nothing in it that offers texture no like it's a very like Flat, sterile, cold, like cold, all the lighting. Yes, the lighting is like yes, austere. all in like sunlight, white light. Right, yeah, like there's nothing austere. like yep. yellow or like golden about no, it. No, like, no, no.
0: And I think it's, you know, all the same. I mean, you know, the question becomes, you know, like, is the film pornographic? And it would kind of depend on how we define that, right? And I think, I think the answer is no. I mean, I think that the film... Does not, because the pornographic is about titillating you with the image. Right. right. Right? And the argument is that the bulk of American cinema, regardless of whether it has sexual content is or not, is
1: pornographic. Yeah.
0: Right? That like an action film is pornographic because it is about it is about the image.
1: Even something like, you know, like the Jets flying over a football stadium totally. or a game is pornographic.
0: Totally. It's totally. pornographic. Or fascistic, even if you want to go down that line. Yeah. But it's. You know, but I think this film very much resists that like it is not attempting to seduce you through the image, right, or connect the content of the film to the to the image itself in terms of that. The image is not erotic in this film, I would argue, Um, which is maybe its own anti fascist gesture. Um, But all the same, I mean, you know, again, I don't think I would show this film in a class um i would not want to be responsible for the consequences of it yeah I because i mean. because i think that it's as much as i could stand in front of the class and be like if you've seen human centipede if you've seen saw if you you know like that's all worse than this but there is something about this film yeah that i think is just too and it, and it is also i think it's not even about you know the erotics of the film i think it's you know, it's in the, the the banquet where they're eating shit or, you know, yeah. like, it, it's that stuff that's very difficult in this film. Um, so, you know, that, that students, you know, not everybody, not everybody can or should watch this film, I would argue.
1: Um, I would agree.
0: I also think that, I'm not sure I think it's a good film, like you know when i think about films i'm like oh that film is brilliant or that film is a masterpiece i like I couldn't
1: know. i like couldn't give it a star rating no you know what i mean that that no. almost like in itself seems like not kosher like yeah. you just can't give it like something like that you can't rate it on that
0: totally it just feels like way. yeah roger ebert gives it four out of like,
1: <laughs> yeah it's, four just, thumbs it's like absurd two
0: thumbs up yeah
1: two thumbs
0: up yeah So I feel, and that's what I mean by I feel like I don't have the language with which to talk about this film, other than to say that I'm very glad that I've seen it, and I'm very glad that I've seen it twice, because I really think it's in multiple viewings that you come to understand how a film works. It's also not my favorite by Pasolini, I would say.
1: Oh, no. Not even close. I honestly, for all of the, like, failures he saw in those films, I really enjoy The Trilogy of Life. Yeah. Like, I think those are, like... Those films, after watching them, inspire me to like want to make something. Yeah, like those. This
0: doesn't inspire. Me. No,
1: this, this inspires me to like take a shower. Yeah, no, <laughs> this
0: is no, this is this inspires me to. This is yeah, I don't know if it does not inspire.
1: No, it does
0: not inspire. Not. It's a you know. It's a very diff, it's very challenging, and I think you know. I mean, I guess you know what whoever your listeners are, you know. I mean, if if you know if you're interested in this kind of cinema, you know it's worth watching. It's very famous. You know, it's you know, arguably one of the most famous films of all time. Yeah. Um, as the you know the booklet says that this is a film that's talked about more than it's seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do kind of believe it's important to see films that have this type of reputation. Um, you know, and interestingly, you know, as we opened up this thing, you know, Pasolini was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, after this, we don't know for sure, right, whether he was murdered for this film or because of this film, or because he was gay, because he was gay, or, because or, because gay or, or any like, other any like, like
1: reasons.
0: Yeah. Because um, he
1: was a communist. Uh,
0: yeah. Probably all three. <laughs> We're going to be honest. Uh, yeah. you know. But, you know, I think, you know, also this film does exist within... Oh, I just remembered something that I wrote down in my notes. There's something to say about this film in relationship to Nymphomaniac.
1: Mm.
0: Have you seen that film by Vonsher? Yeah. yeah.
1: Parts one and two.
0: I've only seen... No, I've seen parts one and two. And I think that in the storytelling between Stellan Skarsgård and What's-Her-Name... Um, Charlotte Greensburg. Yeah,
1: the frames. The 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 frames.
0: Everything. I was like, there is a resonance between these two. Absolutely, that's
1: so. I never thought about that. There really is within
0: the stories and the things that she's doing and all the different. There's something. She's she's kind of performing
1: a very similar, very similar thing. In in a weird way, though, because she's sort of coming from, like, she because she's trying to, she's essentially trying to say she's like, unredeemable. Right. Right. And right. she's saying, and he's saying, like, anyone's redeemable. And she's like, well, let me count the ways in which no, I'm okay. unredeemable. Yeah.
0: And then he turns out to be the one not redeemable. Right. Because right. he attempts to rape her, right? Um, so I think there's something to say about the two films together. Um, you know, it might be interesting to read them together, you know, in an essay I will never write. Um, <laughs> but maybe in the future. Um, what else did I want to say about this? Uh, oh, God, I had another line of thought in addition to
1: Can I ask you a question? Sure. Kind of like circling back to this idea of oppositional Mm -hmm. cinema, and this film in a lot of ways is like also about power. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe this question is too broad or vague to be like answered, like like in this setting or whatever. But what is oppositional cinemas and oppositional filmmakers' relationship to power? Mm -hmm. Not just in being contra to power, but do they have a? Is there a responsibility to? Wrestle power away instead of just go against it? Right.
0: Power away from what?
1: Themselves, the film? From who they're opposing. Right.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, this is kind of coming back to the earlier questions, you know, which is, you know, what is the purpose or the goal of of an oppositional film? Um, You know, I mean, in the case of Pasolini, you know, does he makes this film? Like 57 or something like that?
1: This film, yeah. Solo? Yeah. 75. Oh,
0: it's much later. I didn't realize it was so late. Okay, yeah. 1975. That's very interesting. Okay, so this is quite late, right? 1975. I mean, I think... You know, I mean, a film like this... it It's not going to have an effect on anything in the Italian past, vis-a-vis fascism. But maybe it is a film that is committed to, as you say, critiquing capital. Um and about the question of the future right that it is a film that you know meditates on in 1975 on fascism for a reason mm-hmm. um, i mean you know i really think it depends on the film i mean i think in some cases oppositionality is urgent i mean in the case of say palestinian filmmaking oppositionality in those films are very urgent yeah. right it is about yeah it is about cinema being used to articulate and contest a situation of dominance and power that is taking place in the now. Right. And that is urgent. And that is a moment in which cinema has a real relationship and the director has a real relationship to, if not you're resting away power, at least opening up the possibility again of the otherwise, which here has very significant material concerns. Right. Um, but there are, you know, there are other, you know, in the context of American filmmaking, I would say, you know, the obligation of an independent filmmaker you know, is to really think about the Hollywood apparatus, which is maybe a tired thing to have to think about. But you yourself think about this, like you wanna be an independent filmmaker, you don't wanna go to, you know, go to Hollywood and become a famous, you know, Oscar winning or, you know, studio filmmaker that starts out by making commercials and then, you know, is suddenly like hijacked to the whims of the studio um, or to Netflix now or to Amazon or whoever's making things. I mean, it's not that you're, you know, it's not necessarily that you would say no to those opportunities, but you know what the risks are, you know what the stakes are there, right? That your your voice will be hinged to something. And, you know, um, so I think in some ways, you know, American filmmakers or North American filmmakers have an obligation to think about that or should think about that in their filmmaking of, you know, if I'm not gonna be a Hollywood filmmaker, if I'm not gonna be a mainstream filmmaker, broadly defined, you know, what kind of a filmmaker am I and why do I make cinema, you know? Um, But I think, you know, sometimes for me, oppositionality, sometimes I think it's just interesting to play with form. You know, like we were talking about uncut gems, and you know, I don't think uncut gems has an explicit political message or political interest, but it is interested in form. And it is thinking about sensation and affect and all of these other things that
1: that I found very compelling, much Mm -hmm. more compelling than Parasite in some ways. Um, Well, maybe that's where, like, oppositionality... Maybe that's what f- its future actually is in like an aesthetic and a sort of like experiment with form that suddenly opens up something yes. it never intended.
0: Yes. Yes. And actually, I'm very interested in films, you know, that do things they don't mean. Yeah. And I think that 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 is what I like, is when I go to see a film, even a mainstream film, and I'm like, wow, that film, you know, like my favorite example of this is The Impossible with Ewan McGregor and, um, you know, what's her name? Oh God, Naomi Watts. And you know, it's a film that's like ostensibly about the the tsunami, the Christmas or the Boxing Day tsunami, but is really, I think, uh, elaborate meditation on edible dynamics in a family. Um, (laughs) And I will stand by that analysis. It's another essay I'm never gonna write, but I really stand by this analysis. Um, and I, I love that, right? Like I love that cinema and you know images always produce more than they mean, and yeah. like that that's that's what makes them such cogent um, forms of representation. Like that's that's why cinema has such a strong political power. Not just because one can quote send a message with it, right? But that images, you know, as Godard always is fond of telling us, like you know they always connect to other images and they always say more than they mean. And, you know, especially within the domain of montage, like you can say so much with the, the um, calculations or formula of montage. Um,
1: and one that, plus one equals three. One plus
0: one equals three is Godard's famous formulation, right? right? And so that's, you know, um, where one image and the second image opens up a third concept, right? right? And I think that that's, you know, which is the dialectic basically, but it's, you know, this is that's amazing, right? And sometimes a film can do that when it doesn't know. Yeah. And I I do like this idea of, you know, oppositionality coming up in unexpected moments and small breaths of life in a film that might otherwise be completely contained or subsumed. Yeah. And I don't know if that's enough for us to, like, have a better world. But, you know, does anybody really believe in revolution anymore? Do we really think that there's going to be some worldwide, like, radical change? Like, that's going to change our conditions? I mean... Maybe that's maybe that's what we hang our hope on, you know, is mm-hmm. is that there is still this possibility, even in the most contained film, you know, of, of it always saying something otherwise. And I, you know, I'm not a filmmaker, but I read and write about film and I've, you know, still after years have found so much more to say about things I've seen multiple times. Um, so I, I guess that's where, like, my hope lies as a critic and why I believe in criticism still, arguably. Mm-hmm. That criticism is not about um, explaining a film. It's not about driving a film to a final meaning or explanation, but about respecting and um, loving its richness and its fecundity and to hope that you can still wrest from it more things than you saw last time. And Mm -hmm. that's what makes it generative. You know, that's what that's what makes cinema the domain of the possible for me is that you can always take more from it than you did. Um, a good film, I think. And that, that can be defined in any ways, right? It doesn't have to be, it mm-hmm. um, doesn't have to be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? High cinema, high art. Sure, high sure. Yeah. sure. I feel like I suddenly like, went on like a, this is how we're gonna save the world.
1: It feels like a good place to end it. Does it feel like a good place to end?
0: I mean, do we think cinema can save the world? I don't think so. (laughs) No. (laughs) I wouldn't bank on it. I wouldn't bank on it. Keep on on making it. Keep on making it, you know. But, you know, I will say, you know, somewhat cheesily, like, what a time to be alive, you know? Like, it's only a hundred... It's been just over a hundred what twenty-five years since the invention of the cinema. Yeah. We are still in the midst of its adolescence. and let's it's finally say.
1: becoming democratized in a yep. way that, yep. like, literature was for. Yep. its entire. Well, I mean, a lot of people are illiterate, so yep. when people got more literate, got right? more, yeah. But like, I mean, yeah, like you don't have people like Woolf or Joyce coming until what? Writing was, or the novel is over four hundred years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so who knows what cinema's potential yeah, is, is.
0: is and i think i think we have to believe in that like i think we have to feel like there are still images to be made yeah and maybe we don't need to go to outer space for them <laughs> yeah, <maybe laughs> you know it can but happen here. maybe it can maybe there are still images to be made and yeah. you know maybe we can even say that it's still possible with an american filmmaking i mean i think that that has to be something that mm-hmm. we you know i mean i think it will take you know of course new filmmakers you know young filmmakers to be doing that um Especially because, you know, our friend Godar probably doesn't have that many years left. No. Long live Godar. Um, arguably, as you know, I believe he's the greatest living filmmaker. <laughs> Certainly the most important. Um, but yeah. Uh, okay, we'll end on that very untrendy note to declare the greatest living <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> long live cinema's dead,
1: long live Godar. <laughs> exactly, Cinema's
0: dead, long live Godar. <laughs> uh, oh my god, if he dies after this movie. Hey,